This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Felix Salmon and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Tuesday, December the 7th, and we are focused on labor relations. There were two big pieces of news in the media world this week. Yesterday, BuzzFeed went public and promptly saw its valuation fall off a cliff. It is now looking decidedly short of the cash it needs if it's going to be able to grow and thrive. Then, today, the National Labor Relations Board came down hard on another publisher, Gannett, which publishes a whole bunch of newspapers across the country, including USA Today. Gannett is accused of union busting. It has apparently been interrogating employees about their union activities. It's even insinuated that those activities were being surveilled. That's a no-no. That's a big fight with the NLRB. After the break, I'm going to talk to Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher about all of these fights between capital and labor that are going on in the media world, not just Gannett, not just BuzzFeed, because they have a big fight with their union right now, but even at the New York Times, it's happening all over. And we are going to talk about what we can learn from those fights about labor relations more broadly. So I'm joined by Axios's Sarah Fisher. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, Felix. You have been writing about labor versus capital issues in the media industry for a while now, and there is no shortage of them. And the one that is in the news right now is BuzzFeed. First of all, we had a lot of news from the labor union. They went on strike when BuzzFeed went public. And then the flip side, from the capital side, we saw the share price of BuzzFeed. And the share price of BuzzFeed is down and to the right. It is literally worth about half of what it was on Monday morning. And this has got to be bad for labor, right? This, like, If the money side of things is not doing well and the share price is depressed, then that has to make it harder for the workers to get big raises and all of the money they want. Exactly. And that's the main thing that's driving these union workers at BuzzFeed. They say that they want more money from management. They say that given all of the you know, hubbub around this SPAC deal. It's something that should be getting done and be getting prioritized. But the problem to your point, Felix, is it's kind of hard for management who we know does not like unions. Jonah Peretti, the CEO, is sort of infamously known for not being a very pro-union media CEO. It's hard for them to rationalize being receptive to sort of that pay increase message when they're quite frankly struggling to get this IPO outrunning smoothly. You know, the share price is down below $8 as of Tuesday morning. It's not been the breeziest situation for them. So one of the things that BuzzFeed had hoped to do as part of this going public deal was raise $270-odd million in terms of new, fresh cash that they could use for acquisitions or for raises for their journalists or for pretty much any corporate purpose that they, that they wanted. And then the big disappointment in this back deal 
was that those people who had put in the $270 million in cash, 94% of them said, eh, never mind, and took their cash out, leaving just $16 million for BuzzFeed, which is not the kind of massive war chest that the labor union had been eyeing. Correct. Now, it should note that they do have $150 million of convertible debt, borrowed money that they can use to fuel growth. But you're right, Felix, this is not a ton of money that they raise at this IPO. And the challenge is going to be not just how do you, as a union, continue to fight for pay increases when that's the economic reality of the SPAC, but also how do you continue to fight for this type of pay increase when the economic realities of BuzzFeed and its future are now challenged because they didn't raise this money. BuzzFeed wants to buy up a bunch of companies. That's their growth strategy. It's going to be pretty hard to buy up a bunch of companies when you're barely profitable right now and you haven't raised a lot of money. It doesn't mean that I think what the union's asking for is untenable. It just makes their argument a little bit difficult at this time. Jonah Peretti, the CEO, has been going around saying he has over half a billion dollars of revenues. How is it possible for a company with over half a billion dollars of revenues to barely make any money? Why is the economics of digital media so hard? And where is all of that money going? Digital media is a labor-intensive field. The highest cost center typically tends to be salaries of people, and people are required to create this product. You know, if you look at other types of industries, software being a great example, you can scale without having to pay heavy salaries. You build algorithms, you build data centers. That's not the case with media. IP is going to almost always be created by people. The other challenge with BuzzFeed is they've still got a lot of integration costs that they are going to have to figure out before they reap some sort of synergies from these deals. So they've announced a, an acquisition with HuffPost a few months ago. They've now combined with Complex Networks. That was a $300 million deal that closed on Friday. In order to make sure that this company can run seamlessly, bring in tons of revenue that can one day yield profit, you got to make sure that you bring all these systems together. So even if BuzzFeed does intend to become profitable, I wouldn't expect them to just sort of turn that spigot overnight to be uber, uber profitable anytime soon. You mentioned that Jenna Peretti is known as not being one of the more union-friendly CEOs in media. Are there any union-friendly CEOs in media? Are there places that have a relatively pleasant and non-adversarial relationship between labor and capital, between workers and management? Well, traditionally, no. But I do think that some of the legacy companies are a little bit more used to having unions, particularly newspapers, because unions were developed at a time when people were working and doing physical labor and printing presses, when people had more sort of replaceable labor jobs. But Felix, even now, some of these newspaper companies that have had unions for decades are really struggling with it in the digital age. If you look at the New York Times, for example, they are facing a three-pronged union battle right now. They have their core newsroom, which they're really struggling to negotiate a new contract with, and that's gotten very public and messy. They have 600 tech workers who have voted to unionize and are asking management to recognize that union. Management says it won't voluntarily. And then you have Wirecutter, their consumer reviews website, which staged a five-day walkout over Black Friday over a tiny pay increase. Even just looking at some of these union fights at places like the New York Times and Gannett, places that you would expect to be more friendly to unions, seeing how bad it's gotten for them in the digital era, it makes it hard if you're somebody that is a pro-union person in a newsroom. 
I will say one thing that surprised me recently was that Robert Albritton, the former CEO of Politico, he said he would voluntarily recognize Politico's union. I was actually pretty surprised to hear that I thought he would put it to a National Labor Relations Board vote. Let me ask you about the Wirecutter Union, because they're a very interesting case here. They are part of the New York Times. They get paid significantly less than their colleagues who work in the New York Times newsroom. Can you explain to me why would the New York Times, which is actually pretty profitable these days, be taking such a hard line with the Wirecutter workers? My feeling is that they think it's a slippery slope. Once you concede on this front, you're going to have to concede on a whole bunch of other fronts. And for the New York Times in particular, once you concede on this demand from this union battle, you have two other major union battles that you're going to have to fight. And so I think this is about just making sure that they can posture themselves to be in a position of power when it comes to these negotiations. And it's going to be a challenge for them because not only do they have very outspoken union members, but the New York Times as a brand and institution has so many followers and fans that were weighing in online, that were trying to get around this. Anytime the New York Times posted something about the Wirecutter Union over Black Friday, the fans of Wirecutter were saying, boycott this, don't click this link. And so I think the New York Times is just trying to hold its ground, even if it's over a teeny little ask from the Wirecutter Union. Gannett is in the middle of a big union fight. What's going on there? Gannett's union fight has gotten pretty ugly, Felix. So we talked to a bunch of people on the record a few months ago. And basically, the big tension for them is over diversity. People in newsrooms want to ensure that there's a pipeline of diverse talent coming in, and they want management to hold to commitments to hiring diverse people. Another big one at Gannett, which was really interesting, was that during the pandemic, some of the newsrooms had their 401k matches cut. And so the reinstating of those matches was a big union fight. And I think overall, you're just starting to see with some of these big conglomerates, Gannett's a great example, where there's lots of sub-newsrooms or subdivisions, that people feel like coming together around the union is actually a way to come together socially too. That was a huge thing I kept hearing at Gannett was, you know, the union is the first time that I'm getting to really connect with people that are part of this bigger company. Some of these newspapers have been consolidated in mergers. And so it's kind of become this like social activist thing that is exciting people that are within these newsrooms. If you worked in a newsroom in the olden days, pre-Slack, basically, you would have a very small team who you would talk to, and then you would like report up to your management. People communicated in newsrooms was generally vertically rather than horizontally. And now we have Slack, which has made it incredibly easy for horizontal communication to happen between workers and for entire separate Slacks to go up, which management never even gets invited to. And in a world where people are spending all of their time basically working in these virtual environments, it becomes so easy to build communities online in a way that it wasn't before. And this has really been driving a huge part of the labor organizing in the media world and elsewhere. No? Totally agree. And for the first time, a lot of these media companies have to acknowledge public pressure to address their union fights. That didn't happen in the age before digital. You know, if someone staged a picket line outside the New York Times, Maybe a local paper would cover it, but it wasn't something where photos would go viral of it. Now you could stage a virtual walkout. So that public community, too, as well as the internal community, 
I think has completely changed the game. It's put much more pressure on media companies to address these union fights in a way that I don't know that they would have pre-digital. Do you think that at some point, management and companies are going to start taking their case online, or are they still going to remain very tight-lipped and just do everything internally? Such a good question. In the short term, because a lot of these union fights are about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I don't think management is going to publicly combat them because it's such a sensitive topic. In the long term, they might start to pull together arguments that the digital ecosystem can create stars and can create brands that they want to be able to reward people with, and they can't do that in a union structure. That's something we hear about a lot from CEOs, that the union might inhibit their ability to really lure talent and compensate them fairly. And lure talent, by the way, from big tech. This a newsletter writer is amazing and they want to pay them a lot of money, but they can't because of a union structure. That person might go put their newsletter on Twitter or on Facebook or on Substack. I think in the long term, there might be an argument about competitiveness that might start to break through. Sarah Fisher, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Felix. Welcome back. What I'm watching today is Amazon Web Services, or maybe you should say I'm not watching it today because a whole bunch of sites that I might be watching today were down. AWS runs a huge chunk of the internet and a bunch of it failed among the apps and sites that became unusable. It's a long list, but Amazon Prime Music, Ticketmaster, Fortnite, Venmo, Coinbase, Disney+, DoorDash, Capital One... Even the McDonald's app and ring doorbells. If you have a ring doorbell, maybe you can't see who's dropping off that Amazon package. It's a stark reminder if we really needed one of just how much of a monopoly the internet has become. One company, Amazon, controls an astonishing amount of the internet infrastructure in this country and around the world, which is maybe why Amazon's stock rose today by 3%. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Felix Salmon, and my colleague, Erica Pandey, will be here tomorrow with another Axios Recap.